You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 27th of October. And on the programme today, we discussed the crazy weather that we saw over the last 24 hours. We found out how it's been impacting local businesses. And we also asked what's causing it and why it's so localised. That was with our geophysics expert, Dr. Diana Francis. Meanwhile, Dubai police also joined us on the line to explain how they're keeping us safe in the rain. Meanwhile, do you remember all that hype we had about Hyperloop? Well, It all went quiet for a few years, but now an LA-based company is looking to develop an express freight operation in Italy. But what about us here in the UAE? Well, we found out more with the CEO of Hyperloop TT. Plus, we got analysis on the viability of Hyperloop systems with Kevin Smith, who is editor of the International Rail Journal. Meanwhile, we had a conversation yesterday about climate quitting on the programme. That is when people leave their jobs because they feel that their employer's values don't align with theirs when it comes to going eco-friendly. Well, while you might not be ready to leave your job because of climate reasons, what could you be doing? What should you be doing? And with 30 days until the start of COP28 right here in the UAE, there has never been a better time for us to start looking at our behaviour. Or at least that is the message from Tatiana Antonelli. Now, she's the founder and CEO of Goombook. They're a social action group. And she joined us on the line to give us plenty of helpful tips about how we can go green. Meanwhile, with two World Cups keeping us entertained over the weekend from a sporting perspective, Chris McCarty joined us on the line to talk us through both the cricket and the Rugby World Cup. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Good to have you with us. Okay, we're going to turn our attention now uh, to a subject that was getting a lot of news headlines, probably about, I think it was probably about seven years ago, actually. Much was being made of Hyperloop being the future of transport for both passengers and freight. It was a really exciting idea. I remember I went to one launch, which I think was up at the top of the Burj Khalifa. um, And the general gist was that it was promising Uh, super fast travel. Uh, There was talk of cutting the commute from Dubai to Abu Dhabi to just 12 minutes. And the way that Hyperloop works, if you're sort of new to the region, haven't heard about them, um, you get a vacuum tube. Uh, By the way, this this is like the, the Google, the Wikipedia version rather than a scientific version. Starts with a vacuum tube and through that you get passenger or freight carrying pods and they can move at incredibly high speeds in part because they're in a vacuum and partly because they're magnetically levitated and my GCSE physics tells me that therefore there's no friction which means it can go even faster but it's fair to say that that sort of initial rapid growth of the technology does seem to have stalled Uh, entrepreneurs in the sector they're basically grappling with the scientific elements of it the tech the regulatory financial and of course there's also political hurdles as well because if you're going to build these tracks or hyperloops, then, you know, you're going to need to build them in cities. And there's quite a lot of stuff in cities already. So it's a sort of interesting theory, but it didn't seem to come to a great deal. It all definitely went quiet over the COVID-19 pandemic. But now it turns out that the tech could be facing
facing something of a resurrection. That's via an LA-based company called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, or Hyperloop TT. And I'm joined on the line now by their CEO, Andres De Leon. Hi, good morning to you, Andres. How are you? Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me here and giving me the opportunity to explain about our technology. Yes, I'm really, really interested to know what is the situation with you guys at the moment? I hear rumours that you're going to be setting up a Hyperloop in Italy. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. Uh, You know, more than one year ago, uh, the Consorcio de Autostrada di Veneto, the Highway Consortium of Veneto, um, they did a PPI, a public-private project for innovation, a tender, and they launched the tender, and there were like seven consortiums that were trying to be pre-qualified, and then finally we were the only one qualified, and we want the tender. And we have started recently all the job to develop this project that basically aims to have the first 10 kilometers of Hyperloop being built in the world, in Italy, in the highway between Venice and Padova, uh, and we need to finalize the project by 2028. So we will, uh, we are starting with the project right now. It's a 800 million project, um, and it will, it will become real uh, by 2028. Okay. So you're doing the pilot study at the moment. Where are you building that? We will be building that in the alignment next to the highway. This highway is the most condensed highway of Europe. And we are not just doing the the study, you know, we want this tender and we would, of course, we are in the feasibility assessment uh, phase, you know, but um, but the whole idea is to do all the engineering, prototyping, and manufacturing. The PPI is a, is a very nice regulatory framework that was developed in Europe to help that so public companies can finance the development of innovation uh, by private companies. And we want this uh, tender in a consortium together with our partners we built uh, and Leonardo the biggest aerospace and defense company in Italy and the biggest uh, EPC contractor, construction and infrastructure company in Italy. So we have formed a very, very uh, strong consortium to develop this project now in Italy. So while that's nice for the Italians, the real reason why we're chatting to you is because obviously there was a lot of talk about a Hyperloop being built here in the UAE. There's been a lot of talk about a Hyperloop being built in Saudi Arabia. And when we hear of one being built in Italy, uh, we're a bit like, well, what about us? Like, are there still plans to build <laughs> Hyperloops here in the Middle East? I know you've just been, for example, in, in am I right? that You've just been at the FII in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, we, I normally go there uh, <laughs> every year. No? Yeah, we, we have multiple conversations in the region. Okay, there is nothing, uh, there is nothing concrete right now. Uh, there was one moment where we did the first feasibility study that paid with public money and really based on public procurement rules that was done in the world was done here in in Abu Dhabi uh, for the connection between Abu Dhabi and Alain. Uh, we did with at that time it was DMAT, Department of Municipality Affairs and Transportation. We have been doing uh, a lot of efforts in the region, not only in UAE but also in in Saudi Arabia. We don't have a concrete project right now, and we continue working on it. And we expect that you know with these news coming from Italy. 
hopefully um, Middle East will be in the first wave uh, of this uh, revolution in transportation. Is there still a business case for Hyperloop? Because certainly over the last few years here in the UAE, the focus seems to have shifted to more traditional rail. You know, we've heard about Etihad Rail building a link between Dubai and Abu Dhabi and then, you know, that network expanding out into the wider Middle East. Why does the world need sort of hyper speed delivery of of either passengers or, or goods? Well, I think that uh, Hyperloop competes very well with uh, regional aviation, you know, basically you could connect uh, in a much more sustainable way uh, cities with long distance and of course uh, compete very well with high speed rail. No, high speed rail is great. I come from Spain, the country with the second largest uh, network of high speed rail in the world. Um, but the problem with high-speed rail is that when you go more than 600 kilometers of distance, people doesn't want to take the, the train. Everybody travels Barcelona, Madrid uh, by by high-speed rail, but nobody takes Madrid-Paris by high-speed rail, okay? Nobody wants to be in a train more than three hours. So basically, that's one of the problems that they have. And the second problem is the financial viability, no? Again, coming from Spain, I know very well this technology. Uh, we... We have been, uh, we have the lowest capex per kilometer in the world, in the Western world. The line that is more successful is Madrid-Barcelona. And we are talking about 120 years for payback period of that technology, okay? Whether in Hyperloop, in all the facility studies that we have done, we are talking about between 25 to 30 years. That opened a completely different scenario because opened the scenario that just private companies could finance these or public companies, but not depending on the budgets and not depending on subsidies, but making this a real business. So basically, Hyperloop is much more sustainable, is much more financially, economically viable, and 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 of course, you know, is much better from the point of view of the comfort of going from city center to city center and covering long distance. No, that are that are the main uh, reasons why the world uh, we believe that it's not only that is a good thing to have but it needs an hyperloop so how about the tech though because it really is a very sort of technologically advanced project isn't it and i know that for example dp world have been working on it for you know more than a decade now lots of money has been put into developing hyperloop technology but we're just not there yet because it is just so complex well, I think that, you know, uh, fortunately for us, the times where people was asking if the technology was possible or not possible are gone, you know. Now it's about when it's going to happen, not if it is going to happen. Everybody has understood in the transportation world, in the real uh, technical and transportation world, in the sector that Hyperloop is possible, you know, and that technology is, is feasible and is possible. We, as Hyperloop TT, we are the first company that was formed to develop the Hyperloop. We have been 10 years. We have this completely different way of building the company with more than 800 people around the world working in exchange of equity of the project, more than 50 companies, companies like Itachi Rail, companies, one of the biggest uh, rail companies in the world are has been collaborating with us, companies like Label, the inventor of the vacuum pump. So, you know. So we have demonstrated that it's possible and that the technology is there and is possible. We have won this uh, tender in Italy, you know, demonstrating to our consortium partners that uh, this is a real possibility. 
And now it's a question of building the first uh, five, 10 kilometers, showing to the world that it's not only possible, but it's also economically viable and it's efficient enough, okay? And, and basically that's the next steps and that's where the market is. So do you think it's a possibility that once everyone here in the Middle East sees a sort of Italian route working, that we may again see a revival of a Dubai to Abu Dhabi route or, or a Neom to Riyadh route, for example? Well, uh, you know, obviously that's our, that's our hope, no? And, you know, we need to... We need to keep being optimistic, okay? Uh, sometimes people tell me that we are building a big unicorn and I say that we have been building a camel, no? We have been through the desert for more than 10 years, uh, fighting and working, you know, with an incredible team of people uh, around, surrounded by an incredible team of people. And we strongly believe that once uh, people see that this project is happening, basically, and, you know, the deployment of the Hyperloop uh, routes around the world is going to be exponential. No? We don't want to build the Hyperloop, we don't want to operate the Hyperloop. We are a technology licensor, so we will be working with all the companies around the world that are in the infrastructure world and in the transportation sector to be sure that we can deploy the Hyperloop as fast as is needed. Well, I wish those uh, Hyperloop developers uh, all the luck in the world because it sounds like an absolutely brilliant technology. Uh, Andres de Leon there, uh, CEO of the LA-based company Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the agenda this morning. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. I love the idea of a, of a rather than a unicorn, a sort of ha- a camel instead. Uh, and so, uh, fingers crossed, who knows? I mean, I have to say, the idea of a 12-minute journey between Dubai and Abu Dhabi is incredibly appealing. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Yep, we are discussing on the programme today the viability of Hyperloop and whether it could be I suppose, the future of transport, not just for passengers, but also for freight. That is after an LA-based firm, Hyperloop TT, uh, just told us that they'd signed an agreement with the Italian government to build one. Uh, That was Andres de Leon. He's the CEO of Hyperloop TT. We just spoke to him right here on the agenda. And, you know, I mean, why are we so interested in someone building a Hyperloop in Italy, you might argue? Well, because we were supposed to get it first. I was promised a Hyperloop seven years ago. And until I get one, I'm not going to stop banging on about it. Um, And so I want to find it, you know, I just wanted to find out what the viability of one of these things is, because we have heard a lot about it. A lot of money has been invested in developing the technology. And seven years down the line, there, I mean, there isn't one yet. Like, there's, there's no arguing with it. It's a bit like, you know, the the autom- automatic cars. You know, we don't have totally automated taxis yet. We also don't have, like, sky planes or sky cars or sky taxis. So you have to take all of these sort of technologies with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Um, and joining me now to add that pinch of salt is uh, Kevin Smith, who is the editor of the International Railway Journal. Now, of course, Kevin has got skin in this game because, Kevin, you're, a, you're obviously a rail fan and Hyperloop is a competitor to rail, is it not? Uh, yeah, in theory, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if their vision comes to reality, then, yeah, I mean, Hyperloop could, in theory, uh, compete with rail. So I think that's what their objective is. And they see the, the scale and the success of rail over 150 odd years or so and, and, and want a bit of that pie, I think. 
What what do you reckon when you hear interviews like the one we just did with Andres, when you read the reports that suggest that they're going to be building a Hyperloop sometime soon? I think 2028 was the date set by Hyperloop TT for when they needed to have their proposal ready. Do you think we'll be travelling by Hyperloop anytime soon? Uh, not anytime soon. Uh, definitely not. I think, um, I mean, it's a technology in a way that's been around for more than 100 years and I mean, a big scale application still hasn't happened. You know, the principle of running uh, maglev in a pressurised tube, you know, it's, it's it's been around for a long time, but it's been difficult to achieve and expensive to achieve. You know, there's there are a lot of engineering challenges with this. You know, running a high pressured tube at a long distance, you know, that's that's quite a difficult thing to do. It requires a lot of energy, and and yeah, there's also issues with certification and standards and, and getting this through what is a, a brand new technology um so to do that quickly is a real challenge and that's what they found and there was a lot of buzz about this say sort of eight nine years ago as you as you said and but nothing really is has happened you know, substantial you know certainly not on the vision that they would present in their in their bash presentations anyway i've heard all about I hope I'm right on this, but I heard it had to be straight. <laughs> the hyperloops don't do bends. Um, so I, as a consequence, it must be quite difficult to find a, a place to build it. You know, you need an, a wide open space if it, if it can't turn corners. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I, I, I'm sure it can turn bends, but like maybe, you know, quite slight. So it would need a lot of space. And there's also like an issue of turnouts, like from going from one track or one tube to another, because it's got to be, you know, in a pressurised container. So then, to then expand that, you know, that that's difficult or, you know, quite challenging to achieve. So it would go point to point, which then adds you know, more complication to the overall overall thing rather than a, a rail network. You know, you, you know, trains can be trains between different tracks. So, you know, you can add you know, multiple you know, destinations on a single route. There's also the safety issue, isn't there? I mean, on one level, maybe it's easier to imagine a freight hyperloop because, you know, if that was yeah. to crash, no one's dying. <laughs> well, yeah, will you hope? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, yeah we, you don't want it to crash, that's for sure. But yeah, that, this is it. Uh, and I think there are a lot of, you know, people are wary about getting into one of these things that hasn't been done before and, and the safety of it and, and the no, they they made a lot of fuss about this sort of journey experience, but you know you're not looking out the window. You are in a, in a tube, and and going at those levels, high levels of speed, it will take time for people to get used to that. You know, I mean, I think you step on an aeroplane now, which you know, goes at sort of 500 miles an hour, and you don't really think about it necessarily. You know, and you are you know 30,000 feet in the sky, and um, but that's take it's taken a long people a long time to get to that point, and and we're still in very early days of this. What so, do you yeah, think? It will take time. What do you think it is that that's slowing it down? Is is it just technically too difficult? Yeah, that money. You know, it's an expensive thing to invest in, and it takes a lot of you know, courage for people to go for this. Like the, the Italian example is still only like a, quite a small installation, and um, yeah, like it, it would take a, a leap of faith to do that. You know, things are quite tight now terms of investment you know, governments want to get you know, the most bang for their buck to be honest somewhere like dubai where you know cash is less of an issue if they would be the place where you think that one of these things would would pop up but it hasn't and um you know, the uae has chosen the railway with the etihad railway that opened you know, earlier this year as its way of you know, moving high quantities of freight on, on a in a mass transit system rather than on on the road so that they kind of pin their sail to the mast there but that's the site not to say it won't happen no, but it's. I still think it's a little way off. 
It does indeed seem like the UAE government has made a choice probably a few years ago when, you know, all of us were just managing, you know, trying to get through COVID up in a, up in a sort of transport ministry somewhere, both here and in uh, Saudi Arabia. It sounds like a decision was made then maybe not to go all out in Hyperloop and instead, indeed, go for this rail link, which is really extensive, isn't it? A huge amount of investment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it covers the entire country. And as we saw, I think you know, sort of last month or so with the announcement of the potential corridor up to Europe, you know, through Saudi Arabia and revival of the GCC network, you know, the, the, the building bots are in place. You know, that's something that's really viable and feasible. And, you know, you can see happening in, in the next you know, few years. Absolutely. Um, whereas the Hyperloop, you know, as, it, as exciting as it is, is still, you know, quite uh, fanciful, really, and and a lot of things need to happen for that to happen on on the scale that's required. So um, for now, it seems the better bet is to you know, back the railway network and get more companies to use that steadily over the over the coming years. So there is a future yet for train spotters, less so maybe for Hyperloop spotters. Kevin Smith, always lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you for getting up ridiculously early in the United Kingdom to talk to us. Uh, Kevin is editor of the International Railway Journal, giving us a little bit of analysis on uh, how soon we could be jumping on a Hyperloop. Not soon. It's, It's not soon. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Now, many of us are working from home today. Uh, That's across the UAE after that epic storm whipped across the Emirates last night. I was down by the sea. I saw it coming for us. It really was quite cool in many ways. Uh, Really exciting and and great to see the, you know, sort of proper weather here in the UAE. Although, of course, not so good news, such good news for, you know, businesses and homes that were then flooded or or experienced damage. And if you're one of those uh, businesses or private homes, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you about how the storm affected you, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 But yep, the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratisation urged all private sector companies to apply flexible work patterns. They said that federal employees could stay at home as well. That was in a statement issued on Twitter. Schools also offered the option of, uh, you know, they offer the option to pupils of remote learning. We were offered that. Needless to say, I'm from the UK and a spot of rain does not deter us uh, from sending our children to school. So mine went in uh, this morning, first thing, 6.30 or so. Um, But uh, the government, I mean, one of the reasons why the roads were clear this morning is because the government and sort of the municipality really did spring into action to clear up the consequences of the storm. Manal Bin Yarouf is director of customer happiness uh, or in charge of the department there at Dubai Municipality. Uh, she sent us this statement. Our specialised team of experts at Dubai Municipality is ready around the clock to deal with the weather conditions throughout the Emirates according to 24 hours work programme. Report your emergencies via Dubai Municipality WhatsApp or contact centre 800-900. Your safety is our priority. Yeah, so 800-900 if you've got any problems. We are going to be talking to Dubai police a little bit later on today. And while, I mean, I saw heavy rain, thunder and lightning in like the Umm Sakim area of Dubai, and I know that people saw storms in Abu Dhabi as well, there were some spots where 
the sort of storm didn't seem to hit. And, and I was just wondering why we see such localised storms here in the UAE. Uh, and I also wanted to know what is causing this current spate of bad weather. Uh, so I got in touch with our favourite geophysics expert, Dr. Diana Francis, from the Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. And she joins me now on the <coughs> line. Dr. Francis, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda. Tell me, why are the storms localised here? Because if you get rain in the UK, you kind of get it for either the south or the north of England. But here it seems to almost know the neighbourhoods. You know, Arabian ranches will be dry, whereas Times Square will be drenched. Good morning, Georgia. And I hope everyone is safe after this uh, storm yesterday. Uh, Indeed, uh, the the characteristics of storms in the UAE are really uh, specific to uh, the region in which we live and which falls in the subtropics, uh, bordering the tropics. So in these climatic regions, uh, we do have uh, the development of local convection. Uh, So these systems of very uh, big clouds uh, developing locally. And that's what gives, you know, uh, very localized patterns of rain, uh, winds and um, and the storms, which is different from uh, mid-latitudes. So Europe, UK, uh, France, uh, where they're mainly the, the rain comes from. Uh, cyclones, okay, these are uh, moving uh, features, uh, they develop over ocean and they move over the continent. Uh, so that's why the difference here between uh, these two um, features. Yeah, we just had a message come through from Stephen who says, storm, what storm? I live in Murdiff and it only sort of made my car a bit dirty. Whereas my colleague Jen, producer Jen, she was up in Healthcare City and you know, it was basically a washout there, fully flooded. People were really struggling to get home uh, to Arabian ranches. So it really is interesting how you get, I mean, you know, healthcare cities hardly any distance from Murdiff, if you think about it. Um, tell me what is causing this current spate of bad weather. I know we had a cyclone this week. Uh, it was Cyclone Tej, wasn't it, up in Oman. But this isn't the tail end of that. Yeah. So uh, in general, uh, during the transition transition seasons, meaning fall and spring uh, here in the UAE, we witnessed uh, this kind of um, events. If you notice, you look back uh, in the historical data. So spring and fall are really the prone seasons for uh, development of convective uh, clouds in the, in the country. Now, of course, we need some triggers for this. And actually, uh, this event, yes, was triggered by uh, the cyclone, not really in direct way, but in indirect way, meaning that with the cyclone moving uh, northward and over on man, a lot of air masses that are coming from the Indian Ocean uh, loaded with water vapor and um, uh, humidity are uh, are over the country that collided with the warm air that was over the area before this push of uh, uh, moist air from the ocean. So this collision between these uh, two, um, you know, very different air masses, one is uh, very warm and dry that we, we had here before this event, and one is uh, very moist and uh, and. Uh, relatively colder than the one that you had here. So this collision uh, in general uh, leads to the formation of thunderstorms. And this is what we witnessed yesterday. Dr. Diana Francis, as always, fantastic to get such a clear explanation from you on why we have seen the weather uh, that we've had just over the last 24 hours. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Fantastic, as always, to have you on air. That is Dr. Diana Francis from the Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. Hey, 
Hey there, welcome back to the programme. Good to have you with us this Friday morning and on our programme yesterday. Well, we're actually sort of turning back to the topic that we did yesterday because we were talking about this growing trend of climate quitting. And that is when people walk out of a job because their employer's environmental values don't align with their own. Now, we were asking you guys whether anyone had done it we didn't get anyone on the phone we didn't get anyone on the messages i wasn't surprised by that actually here in the uae but what was very interesting is that when jen and i went out looking for potential case studies or people who had done it we actually found that quite easy so while there might not be anyone in the uae there are lots and lots of people around the wider world who are indeed making that decision and it sort of got us thinking you know how deeply do we feel about the crisis? You know, how much of a difference are each of us willing to make in our private life in order to live a sort of greener life? I know that my answer is is unfortunately probably not a great deal, if I'm honest, but, I, but I'm clearly sort of behind the curve on that. And lots of people are making huge sacrifices or, or certainly transitioning their life. And it turns out that that might be something to do with my age. There she is again, announcing how old she is on the radio. But I mean, I suppose I'm 44. Maybe I've, you know, maybe I've missed the the climate change train when it comes to sort of trying to um, make a difference. Because there's two studies out and producer Jennifer Crichton's been looking into them this week and making me feel old. So, Jen, what are these two studies showing us when it comes to climate change attitudes? Well, essentially... It is an age thing. And younger generations are willing to put their money where their mouths are more than the older ones when it comes to the climate. So from pressuring their governments to take bold action towards net zero to boycotting companies with shady, shall we say, environmental records, young people are increasingly pushing for direct action from businesses and bodies that want their support. Now, of course, this is something that we saw just last month in this year's Arab Youth Survey. That study of 3,000 young people across the GCC showed that an increasing number are willing to amend their own lifestyles to become more climate friendly, as study author Sunil John explained to us. 65% said they will change their personal behavior because they know that their actions leads to larger per capita carbon footprints. In fact, in this region, especially in the GCC, this region has the highest global per capita carbon footprint, you know, in terms of how we live our lifestyles. So young people say that their personal behavior has an impact on climate change and they are willing to change. And it's not just a local trend. So there's now a new pan-European survey that was published by YouGov this week. And it found that while young people are unlikely to have any faith in small climate gestures, essentially Gen Z do not believe that binning plastic straws will lead us to net zero, but they will take much more dramatic action in order to go green. For example, they're willing to have smaller families or to stop using cars altogether. Hang on, hang on, hang on. They're willing to have less children. Yep. That's a big one. A huge one. A huge one. A significant proportion of young people are willing to have smaller families or even not have children at all because of climate concerns. They're also willing to stop using cars altogether, to never get a driving licence and even to go vegan. 
you're far more likely to go vegan if you're under 24. Now, a significant 54%, in fact, of 18 to 24-year-olds surveyed said they would walk, cycle or use public transport before they would ever get in a car. That's against 45% of people over the age of 65. And of those who did want to drive, 41% said they'd opt for an electric car against 21% of over 65s. So almost double. What's more, the younger generations were also much more willing to pay extra for air travel and to buy only second-hand clothes. How about the concept of climate quitting? Because that's what we were talking about yesterday. Has that come up in these surveys? It's not come up in these surveys. And I think what's interesting is, of course, that's where we might see that age thing skew a bit. Because, of course, we met two people yesterday who took that action. And both of them were in their 40s and 50s and said that it was only because they had savings behind them and had the privilege of financial security that they were able to take that action. Now, we did hear from a few young people who were a bit younger than that, and they were mixed in their opinion. I think I would probably not quit my job because of it, but I will raise my concern to my management about it. Because especially now it's really hard to find a job. So it's better to raise that concern and work with them. I haven't ever quit a job because of climate concerns, but it is something that I would consider if I was working somewhere where I thought they were having a real negative impact on the environment and they weren't looking to do anything to better their company. I would definitely consider quitting because it's not something I would like to align myself with. I don't think I'm ready to leave a job. At the end of the day, I have bills to pay and I've got children to send to school. But what we can do as employees is maybe, you know, engage with the leadership of the company and maybe we could sway them towards acting against climate change with major decisions that will trickle down to the employees. Yeah, like I said, we didn't find anyone in this country who was willing to quit their job because their employer's values over you know, their carbon footprint didn't align with their own. But we found people who lived elsewhere, didn't we? Absolutely. And of course, here we've got the the sort of visa picture as well. So there's a lot more playing into it here. But we found a lot of people across Europe and Australia, particularly, who had done just that. Now, Caroline Dennett was one of those people that we spoke to yesterday. She left a consultancy role in the energy sector because of her environmental fears. And instead, she set up her own market information firm, Clout. Now, she says that she believes her decision and her subsequently viral resignation video have had real impact. One of my motivations was by doing something dramatic and hopefully impactful, it would kickstart a conversation on the inside and inside and I do believe that that happened and I've seen you know others taking action from the inside so for example last month two shell employees supported by another thousand members of staff uh, issued an open letter to the CEO Wales Swan really pleading with them not to cut investments in renewables so that got a lot of attention and I think it's not just about employees. There's what employees can do and then there's what business can do. And I think, you know, that is going in the right direction as well. On Monday, 131 global companies signed, uh, again, a, a, an open letter to COP28 saying, you know, governments must reach 100% uh, decarbonised power by 2035 in the wealthiest of, of nations. So, you know, I think the conversation is going in the right direction. We need action to follow. So I'd just like to think that, by quitting and very lucky it was probably a slow news day it did go very viral you know that that planted a few seeds both in terms of employees and in terms of businesses looking at themselves and saying actually what can we do that video caroline's talking about really did go viral it went 
everywhere. So it's definitely worth looking up and having a look at, actually. It's, it's very interesting. But we also spoke to Sharon Keelty, and she quit a high-paying role with a global consultancy firm and founded green business Jiminy Eco Toys instead. And what was interesting is that while she has had impact with her business, she said she sometimes wonders whether there was another way to push the green agenda without actually quitting. I have had a lot of impact by starting Jiminy.ie, the eco toy store. Um, you know, we have an audience now. I talked about being the frustrated person on Facebook trying to influence my friends. We have a community of 17,000 people um, on social media, 10,000 email subscribers. And to date, we've had over 15,000 unique customers. And we've influenced and educated each of those people on the power of how they choose to spend their money. We've educated them about products and what makes for a climate neutral product. You know, what makes a product eco-friendly? By the way, you know, the top thing you can do is not buy a thing. And the second top thing you can do is buy something pre-loved. But, you know, and we're talking about all those things and people always comment and tell us how much they've learned from us. So, you know, that all has had a really good impact that I'm very, very proud of. I guess the only question in my mind is, could I have influenced way more than, say, 20, 25,000 people if I had stayed at a big company like McKinsey with the reach and influence that it has? And I guess I'll never know the answer to that question. Really interesting stuff there. That's uh, Sharon Kilthy there. She quit her high paying role with a global consultancy firm because they're their values, their views didn't align with hers and she was beginning to get very worried indeed about her carbon footprint. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. We are talking about our behaviour now when it comes to climate change. I don't know what you want. I didn't want to know what you're doing in your private life. We're just talking about uh, when it comes down to the efforts that you are willing to make to become a little bit more eco-friendly. Now, on our programme yesterday, we were talking about that growing trend of climate quitting. That's quite extreme. That's when people walk out of a job because they feel that their employer's environmental values didn't align with their own. Uh, We spoke to two really interesting women who uh, were official climate quitters. And although many of us might not be willing to go, you know, to those ends to make an effort to be more carbon neutral, to be more eco-friendly. You know, there are a lot of people making a lot of steps, you know, making sacrifices, changing their way of life in order to make a bit more of a of a difference. And I suppose that as of the Monday morning, by the way, we're one month away exactly from COP28, which of course is being hosted here in the UAE. So I think if there was ever a time for us as citizens of the United Arab Emirates, if there was ever a time for us to sort of take a look in the mirror and think, you know, Michael Jackson style, you know, what could we be doing to make things better for the environment? Maybe this month is is the time to do it. And to help us on our way, we are now joined in the studio by Tatiana Antonelli, who is a climate campaigner, uh, also founder of the social action group Goombook. Tatiana, thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, actually. Thank you for coming in. So we sort of talked about a little bit about what people could do in our sort of previous segment just before the break. There's several surveys have come out and apparently young people are genuinely willing to do things, you know, I think quite big things, you know, have smaller families, fewer children, stop using cars altogether, go vegan, all of those types of things. So those are the things we we could do. What should we do? Um, And as a campaign, obviously, you've got strong views about it. But, you know, what is the most 
efficient use of our time, I suppose. If we're going to do anything, what should we be doing to help the world, to help become a, a, you know, greener individuals? I think the first thing is to look around us and understand that we are a community at, at all levels uh, here in Dubai, in the UAE and at a global level. And we are going down the route of, of very difficult moments. Um, when we faced COVID-19, it, it's been very difficult. It was very visible. We could see what was happening around us. Um, when we talk about climate change, it's a bit more complicated. We still don't really see next to us the consequences of climate change. But in the news, we, we can see what's happening somewhere else. The floods, the drought, millions of people being displaced uh, overnight. Um, I think we, we, we really need to start looking more... Um, as, as the world, uh, as, as being together a global community, not only me, 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 me. And, and for the past, I would say, 50 years, society has been about being very individualistic. We want more. We want to consume more. We want bigger homes. We want bigger things. And we want more stuff. We want to consume. And I think these two things are linked. The first thing we need to do, and it's simple, it's consume less of everything. It's moderation. Do we need 10 pairs of jeans? No. Do we need to have our fridges full of food and half of it as it goes to waste because it's gone bad? No. Do we need 30 pairs of shoes? No. Do we need to have the AC at 18 when it could be at 22? These are little things that are easy to do, very easy to do. We don't need to ask permission to anybody. It makes us save money at the end of the day. So a lot of people think, oh, going green and being environmentally friendly is going to be so much more expensive. No, at all. You actually end up saving money uh, and saving the planet altogether because the less I consume, the less energy, the less resources, the less water. And there's a website I really invite everyone to, to have a look at. It's the Water Footprint Network. It shows you water in everything we do, how much water is behind a burger, how much water is behind a slice of bread or a pair of jeans. And, and then you understand, oh, wow, I didn't know we need a 10,000 ton, 10, liters of water for a pair of jeans. Where is that water coming from? Water is a big issue and it's linked also to climate change. So it's really about putting things into perspective, thinking about long term not only me, tomorrow, and that's it. We need to think about after tomorrow and our next generations. What are we doing? Um, if you have children, I'm sure it's easier to think about, okay, I want to protect um, what we have today for their future. Some people don't have children, and so it's easier to say, who cares? But at the end of the day, again, let's think about a, a, a community. And when we talk about climate change, we talk about biodiversity loss and animals, you know, um, being extinct. Only 10% of the population will care about that. But I think there's a very, very important aspect. Out of all these biodiversity loss, there is the human race. If we don't have the conditions in the next 50 years to thrive, which means clean water, clean food and clean air, we are the next race who's going to disappear. And this is a, is a very harsh message, but I think we really need to understand this. We are at risk and it's scary, 
But we can still do so much for this not to happen. Lots of messages coming in from people who are discussing what they could do and uh, also what they should do uh, when it comes to reducing your carbon footprint. Uh, This person here, um, Taru, says, I tell my kids if they waste water now, they'll have less when they grow up and they'll be paying more for it. And they understand this. I totally agree that we should be using less of everything as we don't really need to have too much to have a good life. People who live very luxurious or extravagant lives, though, may look down on us having these simpler thoughts. Uh, Jennifer says, well, I believe the true uh, one onus is on large corporations. Certainly, buying secondhand, for example, keeps already produced goods in circulation while also saving money. Ralston's got in touch on WhatsApp saying to reduce our carbon footprint, the best thing to do is to go vegan. Meat production is a major factor for lots of carbon emissions. Uh, You have the land that's required for the farms, you need water, and it creates pollution. It really is the ultimate solution and not enough people realise this. Yep, so this conversation all sprung for the fact that yesterday on the programme, we talked to two people who who had quit their jobs, literally quit their jobs. They walked out because their employer's environmental values didn't align with their own. Now, obviously, that is quite a drastic measure. So what can we do to make a difference? Joined on in the studio now by Tatiana Antonelli. She's stuck with us over the break. Climate campaigner, founder of the social action group, Goombook. Now, Tatiana, earlier we were talking about the really sort of big picture stuff, which was, you know, about changing your perspective on consumption and, and you know, what you need in your life and how that can have a major impact on your carbon footprint. How about the simpler box tick things that we can do to actually make a difference. And obviously with just 30 days or 32 days until COP28, which is being hosted here in the UAE, this is this is probably a sort of turning point for many citizens of the UAE. So, so what can we be doing? What should we be doing? Well, I'm, I'm going back to consumption and because it's something that is related to our daily life. Okay, so the way we shop, the the food, for example, that we need for our weekly uh, survival. Um, let's look, for example, at locally sourced foods. So instead of having those strawberries from the U.S., let's look at uh, the ones that are produced here uh, through hydroponics. And they're not more expensive. They're actually maybe cheaper. They're cheaper, actually, yeah. Uh, we can do the same with our cucumbers, our zucchinis. Um, uh, most of the vegetables actually can be sourced either from the UAE or from uh, nearby uh, countries. So it's very, very important to look at where the food comes from. I agree that also the, the the way we consume meat has a very big impact. I am not uh, advocating for being uh, for, for becoming vegan, um, but definitely a reduction to once maximum twice a week uh, red meat. First of all, it's good for you. It's good for your health. Um, the World Health Organization actually says that red meat is is definitely not good for our health, but it's also not good for the the the, the health of the planet. So definitely, let's re- reduce it. Reduce it to once or twice a week. We have uh, different choices. We can go with you know fish and 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 uh, and chicken. These have a very much maybe a third of the carbon footprint than than red meat. Um, second, let's really try to buy only what we need. Uh, a very big problem in the UAE and globally is food waste. We waste a third of all the food that's produced uh, globally, a third. So it has two problems. It has, you know, the implication of um, uh, socially. So many people are dying of hunger. Why are we throwing food away? It's it's a moral um, uh, issue. And also 
the food that goes to landfill produces a lot of methane. And that methane is even more dangerous than CO2 and, and has a very, very big impact on climate change. So let's not waste our food. This is something very, very simple. And you're going to save money again. How about the sort of changing the car argument? Uh, and I bring this up because I recently changed to an electric car. We did buy that second hand, but there's always this sort of conversation. There's always this balance. You know, on one hand, I'm now driving an electric car, but on the other hand, you know, we still have to charge it up. And obviously that electricity comes from power stations. It's a newish car. They had to make the battery out of stuff they drilled out the ground. And I feel like in every decision we make, there's a, a one side and then the other side. And in fact, next week, we're going to talk about carbon offsetting. We'll do a, a big day on carbon offsetting on the programme on Tuesday as part of our climate conversations. And I always feel like club carbon offsetting is a bit of a fudge. It's a bit of a get out of jail free. <laughs> and I feel like that a bit with my electric car, that I'm sort of fudging it a bit because... It's not truly green. Truly green is walking. Truly green is uh, not using the car. <laughs> um, but listen, it's always about uh, do we need something? So if you need a car, okay, let's, let's face it, maybe an electric car is better. Um, also, from a clean air point of view, let's also remember that uh, regular cars emit a lot of, of gases and, and also uh, p- um, uh, PMs, which are particles that goes into the air and that have a, a terrible impact on our health. So an electric car is cleaner also in that sense. Um, the energy mix in the UAE is actually uh, I- increasing the renewable energy tremendously. So hopefully this will also help uh, by using and recharging not only from fossil fuels um, sources, um, but again, if you already have a car, that's the best thing. Keep your car. And uh, we need to use as much as possible what we already have. That's the most eco-friendly choice we can do. Um, the moment you need a car, let's let's really look at the efficiency of that car. Secondhand is the best thing ever. Tatiana, it's been a great pleasure to have you join us in the studio. I know it's an incredibly busy time for you. And no doubt in the coming months, we will be uh, talking to you again right here on the agenda. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your advice. It's been great to have you in. Thank you. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Yep. You wouldn't know it from the traffic, but apparently many of us are working from home across the UAE today after that epic evening storm that whipped across the Emirates last night, or at least part of the Emirates. We were talking to uh, our geophysicist, Dr. Diana Francis, earlier, and loads of messages coming in saying, what storm? It was epic. In Um Sakim, it was epic. In Murdoff, apparently there was barely a spattering of rain. Um, but certainly the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratisation stepped in and urged private sector companies as well as federal companies to apply flexible work patterns. That was in a statement they put out on Twitter. Schools also offered pupils the option of remote learning. And, you know, a lot of businesses did struggle and suffer damage. Many of the roads were flooded. I saw lots of trees coming down and I know that everyone had a bit of a nightmare um, getting back home last night. Dubai police, in fact, urged passengers at the Dubai airports to use the metro instead to avoid that congestion. But how do Dubai police sort of prep for these types of weather events? Let's find out. I'm joined now on the line by Diana Gardi, who is uh, head of security awareness at Dubai police. Diana, thank you very 
very much for joining us on the line. Yeah, how were the roads last night and, and also this morning? Did you have quite a lot of call outs? Did you have quite a lot of accidents, Diana? Hi, thank you so much for having me back again. Actually, it's a pleasure as usual. So yesterday, it was, to be honest, a big surprise for all of us. And even for me as a confident driver, I was a bit surprised at how extreme the weather was. And even though I myself and I know that many other people are quite happy that the winter season, well, UAE winter is starting, we do have to, let's say, have some precautions. We did have some minor accidents. um, But again, uh, we tried to raise awareness to the public. We did release, uh, we had a few press releases. And again, if any of you follow Dubai Police uh, social media, we actually put out, uh, let's say, safety tips that I'm going to explain to you as well. So we try to kind of keep... uh, let's say, our viewers and our audience aware of the situation, what kind of weather we can expect and how can we be safe in such a weather. Are there still any sort of concerns on the roads right now? We've been looking at the traffic maps and it seems to be running, you know, reasonably smoothly, just about, you know, we've just got sheer weight of traffic at the moment with the school run. But are there any patches of flooding out there? Uh, Let's say that there's a few areas, actually. Most of it is quite dry now compared to yesterday, of course. But there are a few areas that still have ponds of water or big pools of water. And this is actually one of the main things I wanted to talk about. So to avoid standing water. Now, again, I know a lot of us are confident drivers. And even if a puddle does look quite small to us, we never actually know how deep it is. You know, so to prevent any kind of, let's say, skidding or hydroplaning, we actually recommend... To avoid puddles completely. So if you have the chance, just indicate and move out of the way and try to go around the puddle for your own safety and also to not damage your car. And unfortunately, I was one of the people that broke my car like this once. So please be extra careful. So far, I've managed to avoid that, although I'm definitely the type of driver who it could happen to. And and you're right, you just never know. In the middle of the puddle, it could be, you know, twice the depth as uh, from when you start. Certainly, I've felt... Actually, I, was, I had my father in the car, father-in-law in the car last night, and he's a really experienced driver. And I, it was quite nice, actually. I could turn to him as I approached a puddle and said, "Do you think the electric car will get through this?" And we did. It wasn't. It was quite shallow. But you're right. We do need to keep an eye on things like that. What's the other sort of advice that Dubai police are putting out? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say I'm very glad that both of you are safe and that your car is also safe. And the funny thing is, my car is a four by four, and I managed to damage it, and it's not electric. So that kind of, you know, gives you an idea of how to how to be extra careful in such weather that even if you have a four by four and you think that you can conquer anything, you should really be careful. And just to get into a few of the other precautions that I wanted to raise, first of all, slow down. And just a reminder, I know most people are, are already aware of these things. You know, we know that we shouldn't be driving fast. We should be extra cautious, but we need a slight reminder sometimes. And even I myself need a reminder. So First of all, I just wanted to mention to slow down. Again, the roads are very slippery. Um, Reducing speed helps you to maintain traction and you have more reaction time in case of any sudden changes. Uh, We usually tell people to keep a bigger safety distance. So again, this gives you extra time to stop in case anybody in front of you breaks suddenly. And again, you know, it's uh, quite slippery. So your brakes are not as strong as they usually are. So that's why we hope that you maintain extra distance. In addition to this, For better visibility, we always recommend to have your headlights on because not only does it help you see, but it also helps the other road users see you. So it's kind of like, you know, you're working together as a community. And again, as we already mentioned, the puddles, be very careful with this one because I know that they look very tricky and they look very shallow, as you know as well. But please be careful if you see any ponds of water, avoid them as much as you can or drive very slowly in them. Again, 
um, a few other things that we wanted to uh, point out, especially in bad weather, but also to maintain throughout the year in our hot summers, is to maintain your tires. Please always ensure that your tires are in good, in, uh, good condition because this can be risky during the summer heat, but again, even more risky when you know the road is very slippery. And of course, avoid distractions. Please do not play with your phones or please avoid any other kinds of distractions. I know this was a very difficult one. Sometimes we're even, you know, looking away for a second just to look at the GPS and that is enough to, you know, have even a minor accident. So please be careful of that, especially in this weather. Make sure that your wipers are also in uh, in uh, good use. Make sure that your wipers are new as well, because sometimes, unfortunately, in the summer, I know that my wipers melted once and they actually made my visibility worse when the rain started. So make sure that your wipers are always new and avoid heartbreaking. Be extra cautious in the low light, of course, and watch out for pedestrians. You know, not all people will have bright jackets or bright umbrellas. Some of us might have, you know, dark jackets or we'll be wearing dark things. And especially when it's dark at night, it's extra difficult to see when there is rain. So just keep an extra eye out for pedestrians as well. And lastly, and most importantly, where Dubai police comes in is that we would want all of you to stay informed. Now, again, I want to thank uh, Dubai Eye for inviting us again to spread this information. And also, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And also, I'm very happy that you do have, you know, a weather forecast for your listeners because you have Dubai Eye, you have the Dubai police application, you have, you know, different kinds of social media outlets and even applications that we can use to predict the weather. So we can plan our journey in advance and maybe even delay it if possible. And if not possible, at least follow the safety steps to ensure that we arrive in a safe manner. Diana, always lovely to have you join us on the agenda. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for that advice. Much appreciated. And along those lines, worth mentioning that the wet and stormy conditions are expected to return around this time, oddly enough. It's beautiful weather here in Knowledge Village, but that, that isn't the case potentially around the rest of the Emirates. So do keep an eye out. The weather forecast is that it is due to settle down uh, by four o'clock, but there is unsettled weather somewhere in the UAE uh, right now. So make sure you look out for that, even if it looks clear at the moment on that school run. But Diana Gardi, Security Awareness uh, Officer there at Dubai Police, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Uh, talking weather on the programme today. Talking Hyperloop, but also talking about the weather, uh, how the storm ex- was, you know, how you experienced the storm. I was down by the sea. It was epic. I mean, so many trees came down. It was it was really awful. And I was actually at the Dubai Offshore Sailing Club and one area of their facility was, I mean, it was almost like a tornado had passed through it. It was really wrecked. Um, so I really hope that uh, the, the sort of rebuilding process has started there in the morning because I have to say it was it was really quite dramatic stuff. Please do get in touch with your experience of the, the storm of the 25th of October, 2023. Um, I know... It wasn't sort of the most extreme weather compared to cyclones, but it certainly had a major impact on much of Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I know Fajira had it on Wednesday. Um, but yeah, keep it, keep those comments coming, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 We will be hearing from Dubai Municipality and Dubai Police in a bit. But first, we're going to turn our attention to the latest sports news. Joined on the line by Chris McCarty, obviously sports editor, head of sport here at ARN. Chris, so you're not... You're not golfing this morning, then? Still know what all the fuss is about. A little bit of rain. Being from the northeast of Scotland, that was just a typical summer's day for us yesterday. <laughs> I just I just don't get what all the fuss is about over here. But 
uh, no, I'm not on the golf course today. I am uh, hurtling towards the office. It's a Friday. It's a big weekend of sport. An awful lot to do. So I might just miss you by about 10 minutes today, I think. Oh, my goodness. OK, let's start with cricket. England's defence, oh, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Another insipid, another, let's be frank about it, humiliating defeat from England yesterday. They were skipped about for just 156 against Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka took no time at all to knock off the required runs. An eight-wicket victory for Sri Lanka. England have now lost four of their five matches at this Cricket World Cup. They now need an absolute miracle if they're going to reach the knockout stages. What they do need to do is ensure that they win every one of their final matches and then they're hoping that other results go their way. That's not going to happen. They've got India on Sunday. That's a mouth-watering clash, but on current form with India 5 from 5, you'd expect the hosts to make light work of an England side that have just not been at the races. Interested to see comments this morning from their captain, Josh Butler. He's going nowhere, Georgia. He says that he is still the right man to take this team forward. I just think, ultimately, winners four years ago, winners of the recent T20 World Cup, I just wonder if the cycle is coming to an end. It happens to us all. Father time waits for no one, of course. And I just think this England team, perhaps, is the start of a transition into the next generation of players coming up. But so much more to look forward to for cricket fans tonight, isn't there? I mean, it's just it's thick yeah. and fast, these matches. It really is, yeah. Match 26 gets underway. 12.30 today is a humdinger. As well as South Africa, four wins from their five matches, taking on a Pakistan side a little like England. They can't afford too many more mistakes, can Pakistan. So I'm really looking forward to this one. South Africa have been the real entertainers of this Cricket World Cup. Pakistan just haven't really found their groove. They've struggled uh, with bat. So this should be a good matchup. South Africa on paper will start as favourites. But one thing you can never take for granted with a Cricket World Cup is that these matches are not won on paper. They're won out there in the crease. And Pakistan will be looking for arguably their biggest performance of this World Cup so far to keep their hopes of reaching the knockout stages alive. It is not the only World Cup in town right now, though, is it? Because let's look ahead to the weekend because... All eyes on Paris on Saturday night. Uh, the Rugby World Cup reaching its conclusion. Indeed, yes. Seven weeks of bone-crunching action. These fellas must be dead on their feet, but they've got to go again for one more time. At least the boys of New Zealand and South Africa do. They are the showpiece. They are the two teams competing for the Webb Ellis Trophy, a repeat of the 1995 final. The Nelson Mandela final in a lot of respects. Of course, South Africa upsetting the apple cart to beat the Kiwis on that occasion. And looking at the leading bookmakers, they're making New Zealand for Saturday night marginal favourites heading into this one. I've got to say, I still think South Africa, you'd be a brave man or woman to bet against the Springboks for making a back-to-back World Cup triumphs. They're just a little, uh, for me, I think they're a little bit more battle-hardened and the Kiwis. They're going to make this attritional. It's not going to be free-flowing rugby. If South Africa have it their way, it's going to be an arm wrestle. And I think, I think the Sapphires are going to get this done. Not much more in it for me than five points, but ultimately, come Saturday night, my prediction, of course, my prediction means very little, but I do think (laughs) South Africa will win back-to-back World Cups. And what they'll do in doing that Georgia, they put this side in the conversation as the greatest rugby union side of all time.
What time's that on? Just so that I can be out the house. <laughs> yes, it's a late one. You might be in bed, actually, Georgia. It's 11 p.m. on oh, Saturday night for that one. I'll be fast asleep. Not a problem at all with that one. Okay, how about uh, football? There's that to look forward to as well. People need multiple televisions this weekend, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they always do. But certainly this weekend, yeah, you've got two big monster clashes this weekend. Saturday night is El Clasico. Barcelona taking on Real Madrid. The big one from an English Premier League perspective is on Sunday, 7.30 kickoff. It's a Manchester derby at Old Trafford. It's the red half Manchester United taking on the all-conquering blue half in Manchester City. And just want to throw forward to our show a little later on this evening. I'm going to be in conversation with the former Manchester United assistant boss, Mike Phelan. He's in town. I'm going to be down at Emirates Golf Club with him on Sunday afternoon for a little bit of a Q&A, a bit of a watch along ahead of that one. It is United against City. That one kicking off on Sunday at 7.30. And if you prefer your sport with wheels, <laughs> is that a phrase? I've got to run with yeah, it. Yeah, it is. We'll run with it. I'm not going to argue with you. It's a Friday, Georgia. It's your show. Formula One, Mexico, yes. The fourth uh, final race of the year. Uh, you've got uh, Mexico. Then you've got Brazil. Then you've got, of course, Las Vegas. And then we finish up in Abu Dhabi. So, yes, Mexican Grand Prix. Got to set your alarm early or late, depending on what way you are. Midnight, Sunday night. That's into Monday morning for the Mexico Grand Prix. Chris McCarty, I literally have no idea how you managed to stay awake all the time. You've got so much going on in the sporting world, but I wish you the very best of weekends and enjoy your off-script show this afternoon. Just a quick reminder, if you are tuning in at Drive Time, uh, make sure you keep it locked on Dubai Eye 103.8 for Chris, Robbie and Sonal. I was listening to them in the traffic jam last night. They were talking about movies. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.